I think that many of you know that I spent uh, the first oh, 15, 18 years of my career in ministry as a student ministry pastor and had many of your kids and went on mission trips with them and, and was in discipleship groups with them and, and loved that season of my life and ministry. There's parts of that that I, I still very much miss. Um, and I remember this one student in particular, this is years ago now, that I had gotten to know, and, and, and I began to notice uh, that, that he interacted in kind of a unique way in the group. And what I saw was that he, he had this ability to kind of take on different personas or images within the ministry in order kind of to assimilate with, with whatever group of people he felt like he needed to connect with. And so he, he could kind of take on this like athletic sort of persona and, and be with kind of the kids that were all playing sports and that sort of thing and, and very much wanted to fit in there. But then he next week might kind of have more of this like uh, emo or punk or whatever kind of alternative persona that he, that he put on and would try to connect with that group of kids. And he even kind of like had this dramatic kind of uh, side to him that he would fit with the drama kids. And then he even sort of had like this main sort of mainstream kind of appeal where he just sort of like hit that middle ground. And I, I watched this happen and I realized this kid was a chameleon. Like he could change to fit his environment. And there was a couple things as I got to know this student um, and, and hear more about his story. One, I, I recognized firsthand just the immense pressure that he felt to fit in. That, that he had the sense of belonging that he desired in his life and how he felt like he would accomplish that was, it was a tremendous factor in, in, in his life. And I very much hoped and prayed and wanted the community of students there and the ministry to help create that. Like, you can be here with us. You, you're, you belong here. But then I also recognized and began to understand that he was completely unaware of it. Like, he, he had no idea, no concept of what he was doing. So anybody from kind of the outside looking in what seemed obvious to us was totally unconscious to him he, he totally missed it we're about halfway through uh, this is the fourth of seven letters now of these these letters that were given to the apostle john from jesus to be dispersed to the churches in asia minor these are found in the book of revelation and now for the second week in a row we're, we're, last week we looked at this church in Pergamum. Now again at the, week, at the church in Thyatira, Jesus is specifically, he's going to confront and he's going to call out a temptation to compromise. And it's compromise that's born out of this desire to, to blend in. It's born out of a desire to assimilate, to get along. But Jesus exposes it because he says it's a threat to the church. It's actually leading you away from life, not to it. And so I really want to approach this morning and this, this time that we have together is kind of a continuation of a conversation that we began last week, where we studied the, the first of these two letters, the letter to Pergamum, wherein Jesus makes very clear in the midst of that the danger of what we talked about as the gospel of compromise. We, we talked about it in the sense that, that a compromised gospel is a false gospel. And his instruction to the church in Pergamum, if you remember, if you were here last week, he says, you guys, you can't, 
You can't tolerate this. You can't allow this in your presence. Which if, for most of us, if you hear that, that sounds harsh, judgmental. And of course, Jesus is the judge, so it's, it's fair from him. But I want us to wrestle with, with the words of Jesus. I want us to wrestle with what this means for the church. And I want to invite us, like it's repeated over and over and over again, I want to invite us this morning to have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. So would you pray with me, and we'll, we'll jump into Revelation chapter 2. God, um, Holy Spirit, would you meet us in this place? Lord, as we open up these words, as we read things that sound sometimes confusing and sometimes difficult to hear, Lord, would you speak your truth to us? Would it penetrate our hearts and our minds so that we can be a people who are pursuing you with everything that we have and living out your kingdom in this place? And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Revelation chapter 2. This is the, the second half of this chapter. These are the words of Jesus. He says to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are doing more now than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I'll cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each one according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not, know, do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end. I will give authority over the nations, that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. And I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, I think that was pretty clear, right? <laughs> Easy to hear. Sherry texted me in the middle of this week uh, when I was working on my sermon and just asked uh, how the sermon was coming. I said, slowly. And she was texted back a few minutes later. She goes, I just read the letter in Revelation. Jesus ain't messing around, <laughs> dot, 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 a little bit scary. I told her that was actually going to be the subtitle of my sermon this week, <laughs> Jesus ain't messing around. Because I think, I think we all feel when we read texts like this and, and consider their implications to the church, both then and now, that sense of uneasiness which is honestly part of what I love about being a part of a community like this. I, I love the fact that we can dive into stuff that isn't always clear and easy and confronts us and challenges us and forces us 
to think. I, I love being able to do that with, with all of you. And so I want to I dive in this together. And I want to begin by looking at the assessment. I want us to think about this, this assessment that gives. Throughout these, each of these letters, Jesus is, he, he gives an assessment of what's going on in the life of the church. I don't know how recently any of you have had like a, a physical or blood work done, but you know that span of time between going to have the work done and getting the results and like that anxiety that you live with in the midst of that over COVID, uh, I had the opportunity to have some blood work done because they were testing to see if I had the antibodies. I was just curious and I got to do, but they did this whole scope of things to check everything. And there's like this window in there when you're like, what are they going to uncover, right? Like, what are they going to find when this blood work gets back? And your, your mind kind of spirals a bit. I think we all know that feeling, and I think most of us hate that feeling. And you have to imagine these churches as they're receiving this letter, as this is making its way through Asia Minor, it's going from one place to the other. It's being read, so this would have been read to the community at large like this. And so if you're the church sitting there, maybe by the time you get to the letter in Thyatira, you're thinking, okay, this is going to start good, but then there's going to, Jesus is going to deal with some stuff, right? You're, you're maybe thinking to yourself, like, I got I to gotta brace myself for what's coming. Now, a bit of background on, on Thyatira. If you were here last week, we talked about Pergamum being this kind of this cosmopolitan center of, of political and cultural and even religious influence in the region. It was a major city. Um, it was, it was a, an area out of which much sort of thought and progress came. Thyatira is kind of on the opposite end of this spectrum. In, in fact, most uh, scholars would tell you of the seven cities that Jesus um, sends a letter to Thyatira is considered the least important, the least significant and influential. So if we think of Pergamum, it's kind of like Chicago, this, this metropolitan center um, where a lot of trends flow out of, like Thyatira is like Dayton, Ohio, okay? And I'm from Dayton, so I can say this. <laughs> but, but that's kind of like, but, but it was a significant in terms of economics, it was a center of production and trade. It was uh, highly influential in, in fabrics and metal production. And so that's kind of, it was almost sort of like a, a blue collar kind of city where work got done, but it didn't garner a lot of attention. Nobody was paying attention to what, what happened there. Jesus here, he begins, as he does in each of these letters, by affirming the church. Verse 19, once again, he says this. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and your perseverance, and that you're doing more now than you did at first. So essentially, Jesus says to the church, I know you're growing, you're maturing in your love and faith, you're serving others, you, you remain a faithful witness to me, even when that, that faithfulness has been costly, the the." the Believers, the church in Thyatira, stand somewhat in contrast to what we heard Jesus say to the church in Ephesus. Because Ephesus, if you remember, they had their doctrine in line. They, they, they were solid as it related to the truth, but Jesus confronts them on the point of love. He says, you, you've lost your first love. 
But here in Thyatira, on the other hand, here in this community, they're faithful in loving and serving. They're faithful in, in how they're treating people. They're growing in it. But Jesus says, I have an issue with your commitment to the truth. I have some things that I, I want to talk to you about. And so it's important, I think, in our, for our purposes in the midst of this, that Jesus will confront both of those heirs either way, and he seeks to recenter the church around who he is and his kingdom that he has ushered in. So then Jesus goes on to address some of these issues. This is verse 20. This is what Jesus says to the church. He says, you, you tolerate that Greek word, so tolerate in our culture can mean a variety of different things. Here, this Greek word specifically means like ignore or leave alone. So you're looking the other way. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating of food sacrificed to idols. So once again, in our brains, we, we need to see this as a hyperlink. It's taking us back into the Old Testament, just like we talked about last week with Balaam, and we went back and looked at that story when Jesus referred to these people who were teaching the ways of Balaam. He's done this again, and the person that he references now is, is a woman called Jezebel. And we don't know if, if Jesus is confronting a specific individual person. We don't know if, if, she, if he is confronting a group of people who have kind of adapted this teaching, but either way, he places them in the same category of the pagan wife of King Ahab. And King Ahab was a king in the northern kingdom of Israel who, who married a woman from outside of Israel who, who had pagan beliefs, and, and it did not go well. Um, a, uh, Jezebel is, is famous. So if you can go back in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you can read her story. But she is famous for leading the people of Israel into idolatry, into the worship of Baal. Here, this, this reference that Jesus makes here to sexual immorality and to food that was sacrificed to idols, of course, we know from um, that in pagan worship, Jesus could be confronting like the physical, physical act of sexual immorality. He could be talking about temple prostitution and, and ritual sex, but this is most likely to be understood and kind of a more general sense as unfaithfulness to God. That the people are, are unfaithful in their worship to God by engaging in idolatry. They're participating in this worship to false gods. So God uses that metaphor frequently. You see it throughout the Old Testament. If you go back and read the story of the prophet Hosea and his wife, you see this gigantic metaphor of sexual immorality that's exposing the, in the heart of the people of God, their unfaithfulness. Here in this context, it appears that there is this active element likely claiming to have some sort of additional special revelation from God. So they're the ones who've been given this kind of additional word from God. Maybe this, this idea of like a Gnostic idea that we know the secret things, we know the mystic things of God. You kind of note Jesus, by the way, he sort of, he almost gets like a little tongue-in-cheek on that. Because when he talks about it, he's like, of those who, who know Satan's so-called deep secrets. Right? He, he flips it on its head. 
But they're, they're this special revelation that they claim to have, to operate out of, they're convincing people in the church that they can mix it up in both worlds. That they can worship Jesus, but they can also go to the temple of, of Apollo and, and worship him. They, they can worship Jesus, but they can go to these trade guilds, which was a combination of of business and pleasure and pagan worship. And that's where stuff got done. Like if you were going to be economically successful, if you were going to sell your goods and buy other goods, if you were going to be a part of, of trade in that, that area, in that city, the expectation of the way that was done was in these trade guilds. And let's be clear, it, it would be far more convenient. It would be far more effective. And it's definitely easier. It was definitely to your economic advantage to do that. But the problem, according to Jesus, is that it's not possible. Is that it can't be done. Like the very first commandment, the, the life-giving rule number one, life-giving instruction number one, you shall have no other gods before me. So somebody in the church is lying to the church. It seems purposefully and, and deceitfully and destructively leading followers of Jesus into idolatry, into unfaithfulness. And the correction that Jesus gives here is to the church, and it's saying, stop looking the other way. Stop ignoring it. Stop pretending like it isn't happening because this person or this group of people, whoever this is, they're leading part of this community to their own destruction. And Jesus says, you can't, you can't tolerate it. So this is, let's be clear, this is undeniably intense here. But it leads us into this additional conversation that I want to have this morning. That's on the topic of tolerance, conviction, and compromise. Tolerance, conviction, and compromise. I think if, if you have ever had the opportunity to kind of integrate into a culture that is other than your, your own, you have a tendency to very quickly see and discover what that, that culture values, right? Like I, when uh, years and years and years ago, actually when my wife was pregnant with my oldest, it was like she was nine, I should not have been in Brazil at the time is what I'm trying to say, but I, I led a trip of students to Brazil. And while we were there in Brazil, the World Cup was going on. And you learned right away that Brazilians value soccer. Like, it is important. Because that tournament was taking place in South Korea. And so the games were on about 2.30 in the morning. And everyone woke up, including people that were there visiting from other cultures. Like, you, the, the whole nation got up at 2.30. You watched the site. You hung to it. You, it was a value to them. And I, as a bit of a disclaimer here, we are not going to do a, 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 a fully thorough dive talking into all these topics. We're dipping our toe in here. But I want to look at this together. I think if we you and I were visitors, if somehow we transported ourselves to the city of Thyatira when Jesus is writing this letter, I'm imagining that for most of us, the, the idols of their culture would, would be very obvious. We would, we would see the temple of Apollo, who was 
thought to be the son of Zeus, and we would see these trade guilds that were happening and the way business would get done, and, and maybe as followers of Jesus, we could step in from the outside and look at that and say, this, this is obvious. I can see it. It's there in front of me. But I would also argue that if you took the Christians in Thyatira, and somehow they were transported here right now, they walked around with us for a week, if they were here in the, the western suburbs of Chicago in, in 2021, I would, be, I would venture to guess that our idols would look pretty obvious to them. That they would be able to see, that they would be able to see with a fresh perspective and clear eyes what we worship as a culture and a community. See, the challenge is always to, to recognize the idols that are forming in our own context. And not just within our culture, although that is important, Jesus is specifically addressing how those things have taken root in the church. Jesus' warning here is to the church. His admonition is on, uh, or his admonishment is what's happening on the inside. He's not addressing the larger community of Thyatira. He's saying, I want to talk to you as the church about ways that your worship has been compromised. Jesus' instruction and correction to the church isn't about creating isolation. It's not about us withdrawing and, and hunkering down and, and avoiding sort of a corrupt world outside. That was never Jesus' vision for the church. Rather, on the contrary, if we go back into the Gospel of Matthew, into the Sermon on the Mount, he says something very different about what his expectation, what his desire and vision for the church is. This is in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says this on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. But this is Jesus' kingdom vision for those who would identify, who would call themselves his followers. So the question that, that emerges for me in the midst of this, that emerges for us, is how is the church influencing the world around us to be more like the kingdom of God. But then conversely, how is the world around us influencing the church to be more like the kingdom of this world? There are a couple questions that I've been processing as, I, as I've thought about this this week. The first is to ask myself and to spend time and ask us collectively, what are the idols of our culture? I think I, it is my opinion, my perspective, that, that some of the idols of our cultures that have kind of laid just below the surface, I think over the last 18 to 24 months, some of those things have become painfully obvious to us. They've surfaced. You, uh, if you're anything like me, I can be really adept at recognizing idols in other people and, and, and maybe sometimes even being vocal about it. But what I'm asking us to do is to search our heart. 
to, to think collectively as, as a body, as a group of people. And, and if you're here this morning and you would identify as a follower of Jesus, you say, I want to be about his kingdom, I want to be about his work. I'm asking us collectively to think about where those might be true of us. I'm asking us to allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. Not out there, in here. And we could talk all day about how our, instead of our, our doctrine informing our political ideology, our political ideologies have become our doctrine. And that is true on the right and the left. We could talk about idols of consumerism and sex and comfort and status, and we could go on and on and on, but I would suggest to you today that when we boil a lot of that down, what you find at the core of that is the idol of self. We worship, we worship at the temple of self. And it's not new. In fact, if you go all the way back to the garden, and you, and you see the very first temptation, it was that desire to be like God, that desire to, to define for yourself what is good and what is right and what is bad and what is wrong. And we've been worshiping at the temple of self ever since. And again, I want you to hear me on this. This is, this is the Holy Spirit convicting me of things. I'm not saying this to all of you as a, a you've got work to do, but I am saying this as a pastor. To those of you who call this your church home, we have got work to do. We have to look on the inside. But the second question that, that comes out of this then is where have these idols gained a foothold in the church? Where are they being taught and advanced and promoted? And there's always this danger. It, it, Jesus addresses this both in Pergamum and now in Thyatira. And he says, as, because of this reality, because these things have taken foothold, I'm calling you, church, to recognize to repent, and to return. So it would be naive of us to think in our kind of modern mindset that we are impervious to this. That, that we're impervious to sort of this blended form of worship that really ultimately is idolatry. So we have to ask ourselves, where has the idol of self in all its forms infiltrated our worship? Where is it being exposed? Because the call is the same for us as it was to them to return or to recognize, to repent, and to return. Je Jesus reminds the church in Thyatira that he is the one who sees things as they truly are. That description of himself at the very outset, remember each of these letters begin with the description of Jesus. Here he says, I am the son of God, which again, Apollo, the temple that was in Thyatira was considered the son of Zeus. So Jesus is, Jesus is kind of throwing down here a little bit, like, right? He's like, oh, I'm the son of God who's actually risen from the dead. He says, I am the son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So there's this, these references from Daniel that he uses to the refining, purifying work of, of God. And he goes on in verse, the second half of verse 23. 23b he says then all the churches will know that i am he who searches hearts and minds and i will repay each one according to your deeds jesus is saying i am the one who sees things as they truly are and this 
is how I will judge the church. So in view of this, what do we do? What, 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 how do we respond to this? And this is what I think is so beautiful about this letter because Jesus sort of simplifies it here at the end. And really the response that he gives to the faithful in the church there is to hold on. This is the third thing that we see. He says this. This is uh, back in, in Revelation chapter 2. If I can find, there we go. Verse 24. He says, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned, this, learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Hold on to what you have until I come. So previous to this, he's, he's already said that what we talked about, recognize, repent, and return. If when we I, expose idolatry in our heart, when, when Jesus um, reveals to us where we are worshiping at the temple of self or whatever temple, whatever form of idolatry, we are tempted to kind of integrate into our worship of Jesus. He wants us to recognize that, repent, and return. And then in faithfulness, what we do is we hold on to what we have in him. I, uh, one of my daughters, who will remain nameless uh, to protect the guilty, um, when we go to the beach... One of, or when she was little, one of her favorite things to do was collect seashells. Many of you probably have done that in your beach trips and things. And so she would walk along the beach and every day she'd be out there collecting seashells. So much that I'm like, my van was full of seashells, you know. And it would be like tiny little fragments. This is pretty and put it in a bucket. And so like as we were getting to the end of the trip, I said, hey, we have all the seashells that we're going to keep. All that we're going to take. But of course she would go out during the day and and collect more and at the end of the day I said you need to you need to put these back you need to go put those back and and she wasn't on page with that and I have like this picture of her laying on the sand like covering her seashell scraps desperately seeking to like hold on to what she had and trying to have this conversation to be like you're going to lose what you've already been given what you've already collected if you if your grip remains on this thing over here, these little scraps and seashells and whatever else that you, that you picked up today. See, the instruction to the church is don't lose what you've already been given in Jesus by trying to hold on in two different places. The message of Jesus to the church is hold on to what you've been given. This week in our, our pastoral preaching meeting, when we were talking about these texts and working through, and Pastor Andrew said, he said, why do I struggle so hard to to, to deal with these words of Jesus? Why does it sound difficult for me? And he said, it's because in, I think I, had, I struggle because I never have known someone who is both so loving and so fierce. And I thought that's exactly right. I think the reason that we struggle at times to hold on to something like this is because we struggle to understand somebody who can be simultaneously, entirely and completely loving and also so fierce. Jesus' instruction to the church is to hold on to what we have. It's a reminder of what we have in him, what has been given to us in Jesus. The life that he offers us when we place our faith in him for the forgiveness of sins and we're invited into this kingdom vision as Jesus followers that he's laid out in front of the church. And he's saying, don't forget that that is everything. He is everything. 
to hold fast, that's how the ESV translates that first, to hold fast is to acknowledge that the world, spiritually speaking, has nothing to offer us. In fact, it's when I tempt to cling to both, one hand on him and one hand on whatever hope, false hope, that I think the world is going to give to me, I don't gain, but rather I lose. The Apostle Paul said it this way in, in the book of Philippians. He said in, in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. The promise that Jesus gives the church in the midst of this is that we will have the opportunity to reign with him in his kingdom. He says at the very end of this, he says, and I will give you the morning star. And that reference to the morning star, it's a, it's a reference used in Revelation to refer to Jesus himself. He's saying, I give the church my presence with you in the midst of this. He gives us himself. And there's nothing more, nothing more that we will need as the church. And so this morning, as we conclude our service, I want to come to the table together as a community. And if you need one of these, um, raise your hand. One of our ushers will rock around with somebody over here, Joe, that needs one. Um, if you didn't receive these and you want to take, you want to come to the table with us this morning, um, we'll make sure that you get these. There's one in back, Martha. Um, and I think it's perfect. Because I think that the reason that Jesus gave us the table was to remind us that everything that we need, we have in him. I think it's a tangible way that we are reminded as the church to hold on to him. And so if you're here with us this morning and you're new, if you identify as a follower of Jesus, if you've placed your faith in him for the forgiveness of sins, if you're a part of this kingdom building work that he's called us to as his church, you're welcome to take communion with us. If you're here as a visitor and you're still exploring who Jesus is, what he's about, what the, like, what is all this craziness? I absolutely understand. I encourage you to just take this in. This is an expression of worship and of faith for us. And I hope it's a picture of, of what we hold um, so, uh, to be so valuable here as a church. So if you peel back this top layer, you'll reveal the wafer, the cellophane kind of pulls off the top here. If you take the wafer, Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room and he broke bread and he gave it to them. He said, this bread is my body that I will give for you. Church, take this bread. Be reminded of his body given for you. This is the body of Christ broken for you. peel back the top layer it'll reveal the the juice and Jesus took the cup he said this cup is my blood it's blood shed for the forgiveness of sin it's the blood of a new covenant as you take this cup be reminded that Jesus is everything that we need he's given us everything we need in him hold fast to him this is the blood of Christ shed for you take and drink in remembrance of him.
Amen.